I'd like to enlist your prayer support for this week. Uh, this week is the Spiritual Emphasis Week at Nyack College. It begins tomorrow morning with morning and evening chapel services throughout Friday morning, and I'm scheduled to be the speaker for that. It's uh, a great challenge. I understand that the spiritual tide is running high on campus, and those in leadership are much encouraged by the spirit among the student body, and we're asking God to uh, give a great lift and vision and uh, careful response to our Lord. And I'd appreciate if you'd be praying with us for this ministry this week. Tonight we're coming to the conclusion of Paul's letter to the saints in Galatia. I hope you'll turn with me to chapter 6 of Galatians. We're going to be looking at the last couple paragraphs, beginning with verse 11. Living in this letter for the last several months has been a deep and rewarding experience for me, and I hope that as you have walked with me through this letter, Sunday night after Sunday night, that something of the preciousness and power of the gospel has gripped your heart anew, the simplicity of it and yet the profoundness of it. Here are Paul's closing words in this letter, beginning with verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. No matter what the nature of a letter or who is writing it, almost always the last paragraph seeks to recapture the spirit of the whole letter. It's a love letter, a business letter, some sort of a request. No matter what you're writing the letter about, when you come to the last paragraph, you're wanting to reassure the reader of the letter of your spirit. You want him to understand what you feel. So there's no mistake about the tone of the letter. I think that's almost always true, and of course, the greeting at the end, the salutation, is a very important part of that. And if you get a, a letter from your fiancé and it's signed sincerely, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> that end of the letter is saying something very important about the tone of all of it. And so these last comments of Paul in this letter are very important to us. And I want us to notice four things about his comments. First of all, what it tells us about the affections of Paul. Notice in verse 11, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. In that day as today, dictation was very common in letter writing. A number of the New Testament documents were dictated to a secretary and not written originally in the hand of the author. That's also true of some of the Old Testament books. But then as now, the author would take the letter 
and personally sign his name at the end. And apparently Paul is doing that with this letter, not only the salutation and signature, but the whole last paragraph. And he's doing it because he wants to emphasize and personalize the letter that's been written. Now, now this document of, of uh, Galatians is a very stern letter. Paul's dealing with an issue that he sees threatening the life of the whole gospel in Asia. And he has spoken rather forthrightly. For instance, in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and turned to a different gospel. And then he goes on in that paragraph to say, I don't care who comes. If it's an angel from heaven and he preaches another gospel, let him be damned. That's his language. It's a harsh letter. Straight message. And now at the end, Paul's wanted him to understand that it comes right from his heart and that he still loves them. Notice the salutation uh, in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers. Brothers. And though he has said things in chapter 3 like, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Now they're understanding that from Paul's heart, he's talking as someone who loves them very, very deeply. In chapter 4, verse 15, uh, there's an interesting comparison with this text where he's talking about writing with large letters. For he says in verse 15, I know that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Some commentators suggest that Paul refers here to bad eyesight, which was uh, an infirmity with him, and that this text in chapter 6 is alluding to that same thing, that he's writing with such large letters because he has such poor eyesight. Or it may be that he's writing with such, such large letters because he wants to give special emphasis to this matter from his heart as he closes the letter. His closing comment, I think, is a testimony of what Paul says in Ephesians 4, that though we speak the truth, we need to speak it in love. And he says in verse 29, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. We can speak direct and difficult truth, and we can leave the hearer built up and encouraged by the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul demonstrates that here. The second matter in these closing comments is Paul's assessment of the teachers of the law. Now let's recall the circumstances a moment. Paul had gone throughout the cities of Galatia and preached the gospel, leaving behind in a number of the cities a group of believers that functioned as, as uh, the church. Behind him, however, came Jewish teachers who were teaching these people that while they have trusted Christ, if they are really going to please God, they must keep certain Jewish customs. At issue, circumcision, keeping to the Sabbath. It's perfectly all right for any of us to worship Christ with our cultural distinctives. It's fine for a Jewish person who comes to Christ 
to continue to worship Christ in a Jewish sort of way. Keep the Jewish holidays, whatever is meaningful to them out of their Jewish culture. That's fine. But when that person demands that someone else must do that in order to please God, then they have added to the gospel, have brought in self-righteousness, and are striking at the very roots of the freedom of the gospel of Christ. And that's the issue which with Paul has been speaking here. And now in this closing paragraph, he alludes out of his heart to let these men know in Galatia how deeply he feels about this and how uh, strong are his convictions about what these people are doing. And he says three things about these teachers of the law, beginning with verse 12. He says in verse 13, I think these men are inconsistent. He says, these men insist that you be circumcised and they do not keep the law themselves. In chapter 3 of this letter, Paul had argued that if you're going to keep the law, you've got to keep all of it. If you break one chain, it's all broken. If you're going to be circumcised in order to be justified in God's eyes, then you've got to keep all the kosher laws, the laws of diet, you've got to keep the Sabbath. You've got to keep the law in perfection if that's what you're going to use to justify yourself. If you break one part, it's all broken. Paul said, these people are demanding you to be circumcised, but they don't keep the rest of it themselves. This, he says, is evidence, secondly, in verse 12, that they're only doing this to make a good impression. That is, they are wanting to convert you as an ego trip. Paul's Language is very strong. They're putting notches on their gun, he says. They've got another convert to the way we do things. I've, I've never been much of a salesman. I tried it twice. Couldn't make my car fare back and forth to work. So I did it as long as I could afford to, and then I had to give it up. But I, the very first day I ever went out selling, I made sales the first two places. Then I didn't for another week. But I'll tell you, it's an ego trip when you come out. I think I was selling magazines door to door, and I think the first lady, after she bought, called the lady next door and says, this little boy is in real need. I mean, he is, you know, he's got problems. Please buy something from him to help him, would you? I think that's probably what happened, but it's an ego trip. Let's be honest. For many people, making a convert is a great ego trip. It builds their self-assurance and in religious matters builds their sense of righteousness with God. Look what I have done. I have converted someone else. God must surely be pleased with me. We need to be careful about that. And Paul says these men who are teaching this self-righteous law are really doing so to build their own ego. It's rather... Uh, straightforward assessment. And then thirdly, he says in verse 12, the only reason that they're really doing this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. And here Paul introduces the centrality of the cross in the gospel and makes this great statement in verse 14 about boasting in the cross. But Paul's insight is that 
People who teach self-righteousness really do so because they want to avoid the offense of the cross. I want to talk about this as Paul's third point here, as he witnesses of his attachment to the cross in verse 14 and 15. Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What a statement. Paul says, I have nothing to brag about in all my life except one thing, the cross of Christ. God's Son died for me. We, we hear this term, the glory of the cross, and I don't know what that means to you. I think many of us get in our minds a picture of the hill and the old rugged cross standing up against the darkened sky and over it is sort of an aura or a halo. And this is a glorious symbol. After all, it means that God's own Son came here to live among us and give his life for us. It is the central event in history. More music and poetry has been written about this one event than anything that has ever happened in human history. It, there is a glory to the cross. And I read this week that among the Muslim people of Africa who will not listen to Christianity, there is coming a great interest in Christ. And this uh, film called Jesus that's being shown across Africa is being widely received by the Muslims. They are interested in Jesus. And when they're asked, what impresses you about the film? They say, it is the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. But this is not what Paul means when he talks about glorying in the cross. Rather, he's saying, I have made it my boast, and that alone, that Christ died for me. There's a hint of what this means to Paul in chapter 1 of Galatians, along about verse 15. In verse 13, Paul reminded the Galatian Christians of his previous way of life in Judaism, how active and zealous he was, and how he was advancing in his religion above anybody else his age. But then he says in verse 15, But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. Paul's testimony is that that day on the road to Damascus, when he was confronted personally with Jesus Christ, he realized that Christ had chosen him from his mother's womb. That all of his religion did not mean one thing. His Judaism, his circumcision, his Sabbath keeping, his high morality, his good works, all of it meant nothing. He had been saved, chosen, called to salvation that day because God chose him long before he was anything. Now for Paul, that was a, a life-shaking experience. He never got over that. To the Philippian Christians in chapter 3, you know very well he wrote something very much along this line. He said, if any of you want to boast in the flesh, I could do that, he said. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was born in the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the sect of the Pharisees, highly religious and moral. But he said, all these things I count but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him. Paul's saying, this cross means 
that there I nailed all my religion, all my good works, all my self-righteousness, everything I could have ever owned as a glory to my name because that cross means that there's nothing I could ever do to gain righteousness in God's eyes. One thing to talk about the cross as a beautiful example of selfless love. It's one thing to talk about the cross as being a, an inspirational sort of thing to be a less selfish person because here's somebody that died for other people. And all of that is true. But that is not the essence of the cross. The essence of the cross is that every man and woman upon earth has nothing they could ever offer God for righteousness. And that's why God had to send his son to die in our place. Now Paul says, not only uh, have I, has the world been crucified to me on this cross, but I've been crucified to the world. What was Paul's world? Paul's world was Judaism. All his life had been given to Judaism. His status, his identity, his pedigree, his family name, his religion, his sense of self-worth, his morality, all of it was in Judaism. And he said, the world is crucified unto me. I've nailed it all there. It means nothing to me now. But he says more than that. He said, the world has crucified me on that cross. That means that his world, Judaism, had turned on Paul. He says in one place, they count me the very scum of the earth. The hatred of the Jews for Paul is well known. He was on their hit list. A death sentence had been pronounced upon him by the Jews. They crucified Paul because of the cross. Paul's testimony is, I, I have nothing to boast about in my life. As I stand before other people, Paul says, I have nothing to hold out as symbols of righteousness. I have nothing of human goodness. If it's true that God's Son died on that cross to save me and there is no other plea, then what would I dare boast about but that cross? When Paul came to Corinth, he came, he said, preaching nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And later when he wrote to them, he said in chapter 1, verse 18, that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. He went on to say that the Jews look upon the cross with great offense, and the Greeks look at it as foolishness. But he said, those of us who have come to deal with it find it the power of God in our lives. Notice verse 16. 15 and 16. Now Paul says, religion doesn't really mean much. Circumcision or uncircumcision is not what matters. The essence is a new creature. Man's problem is his heart relationship to God. Paul says, I don't care what your religion is or what it isn't. The issue with God is, what are you going to do about the human heart? And Paul said that's where the cross 
has brought the answer. A new birth by saving grace. He reminds them in verse 16 that the promise that God made to Abraham, to Israel, is fulfilled not in circumcision, but in the cross. All that God promised of salvation to Abraham is now fulfilled at Calvary. And he says, you are the new Israel because you are the fulfillment of God's promise. There's an awful lot of folk religion around these days that they call Christianity. It glories in religious symbols. It makes converts to build their own self-righteousness before God. It uses the cross as a symbol of sacrifice. It says the right words. But down at the very core of it is this lack. There is not the message that men and women must turn aside from self-righteousness and trust the cross alone. That is the glory of the cross and that is the offense of the cross. I want to ask you tonight, can you sing that old hymn, Rock of Ages? Can you sing those words with clarity? Nothing in my hands I bring Simply to the cross I cling Can you say that? Is that a clear issue in your life? Are there other things that your hands are filled with That you hope will make a difference to God? When our witness teams go out One of the questions they ask people in their homes is If you should stand before God tonight Why would he receive you? The answer to that question tells you right away what's in their hands. Well, I, you know, I've been a good person all my life. I, I'm better than most. I, and I've been a church member. I've, I was baptized when I was a baby, and I do good works. What, what's in your hands? The answer is, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. I bring. Any other answer misses the point of the gospel. The closing verse of that paragraph, verse 17, tells us about Paul's authority. As he closes the letter, here's the man who has been in the fight, and he's saying, let no one cause me any trouble. Don't argue your theology with me. Don't bring up all your theories and empty religion. He says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Paul's body had scars all over it, stripes across his back that had left deep wounds where it had been opened with whips. And remember, the marks on Paul's body were not put there by pagans for the most part, but by religious people. Religious people did it. Because of the cross. They didn't want to hear a message that nailed their religion to the cross and gave them nothing to boast of but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to sing Rock of Ages. Before we do, however, I, I want to ask you to respond to the cross tonight. Maybe some of us here have have never made a clear commitment of our confidence in the cross. 
Maybe you've said, well, I, I, I think I'm a Christian. I, you know, I, I believe in Christ. At issue in the gospel is, have I repented from whatever else I'm trusting to put my faith solely in Jesus Christ? If I have not done that, I've not settled the issue of my relationship to God. I may be moving generally in the right direction, but I have not settled it. And I challenge you tonight in this quiet moment as we'll bow together to make a commitment to Christ, to confess whatever you may have been trusting in and repent from it. And tonight to confess simply in your heart to Christ that you trust solely in his saving grace and make that commitment to invite him to be Savior and Lord of your life. Right where you're sitting tonight, that can be a, a settled reality in your life. Now, Paul is writing this letter to Christians. And he was doing that because even though we have trusted Christ, along the way, it's very easy for us to begin to pick up other things in our hands. Well, Lord, I know I've trusted Christ, but I, you know, I know, uh, I know I'm pleasing you because I've got all these other things. And again and again, we need to come back to the simplicity of the gospel and sing that song, Nothing in my hands I bring. I stand alone on God's redeeming grace. Let's bow together and make our personal commitment to Christ. Lord, thank you for the gospel. I pray tonight as each of us responds to it in our own spiritual journey, that new life, and joy and vitality may mark our lives because we've let the good news have full impact in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.